0: Thanks for coming. My talk today is on updates in acute coronary syndrome. Uh, a large amount of the material that we're going to cover today comes from the uh, AHA-ACC guidelines, which are on the web. In uh, 2004, there was a major uh, um, guidelines that were put out, and in two, um, both for SD-segment elevation, MI, and uh, non-SD-segment and unstable angina. And then in 2007, there were uh, uh, focus updates published. And so my talk today is uh, uh, probably 80% of it, 90% of it will probably be on uh, changes uh, from the 2004 guidelines. So before we just uh, get into the uh, publications there, uh, just we need to know what is acute coronary syndrome. For uh, I'm sure you all know. It's, it, it's an umbrella term, and it, it covers um, uh, any of the symptoms compatible with acute myocardial ischemia. So whether it's an infarct, or whether it's unstable angina or uh, a uh, non-ST-segment elevation M.I. And how, is, how does it develop? Oh, you have a plaque or an erosion, and thrombus can form around it, or an, or could embolize, and then you end up getting cardiac ischemia. And as we, we all know, we, see that we always recognize the ST-segment elevation M.I. pretty good, and we'll generally get elevation of uh, um, biomarkers and uh, uh, development of Q-waves. In the uh, unstable angina and non-SD segment elevation MI, you, you may not have EKG changes, or, or you may, and, but QAs won't develop. In an unstable angina, you, you uh, hopefully treat early enough and prevent uh, any myocardial damage. So why is this so important? Uh, well, of course, it affects all, uh, you know, each, uh, uh, our patients and, 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 a, and global statistics. For the United States, it's a very costly uh, endeavor. $400 billion will be spent uh, in, in the year 2007, and acute coronary syndrome accounts for 1.5 million uh, ED visits. That does not account the simple uh, you know, 25-year-old comes with chest pain and we're just going to uh, check him out. This is uh, um, people with uh, coronary artery disease. And of the 1.5 million visits, you, uh, 43% will have unstable angina, up to 21% with saint segment elevation MI. So the, the um, distribution is fairly even among the, the groups. So looking at some of the, the, the literature, the AHA and the ACC, have, they classify evidence and uh, based on uh, um, the treatment effect and based on the uh, certainty. So uh, if you have a class one, that would be a benefit much outweighing the risk and it's something that should be done. And if it's a level A, it's done with high certainty. Whereas both to, uh, at level C, which was there's limited data, but the uh, thought by the um, publishers is that the benefit way outweighs the risk. And then going down to a um, class 2B in orange, those are uh, studies that are likely beneficial and should be considered. And then there's a new class, uh, It's called a class three, and in this situation, the risk outweighs the benefit. So, in the 2007 focus updates, they've published a lot of class three recommendations where they specifically say, do not do this, Um, and we'll uh, get to those uh, in a little bit. So, the first, I broke this talk down to uh, um, three parts. First is uh, SD segment elevation MI. The second is non-ST segment and unstable angina. And the third is uh, a few uh, uh, pop-free of articles uh, that may be interesting to you. So we'll start off with ST segment elevation MI. Still the uh, drug of choice to treat pain is uh, morphine, which I think we all know. Uh, we definitely want to treat patient's pain. Nothing's changed from the 2004 recommendation there. But in, as far as the uh, um, uh, the new recommendation for uh, NSAIDs is to avoid all of them and COX-2 inhibitors, ibuprofen, Toradol, st- we should still give aspirin. Uh, the uh, EXTRACT-TIMI trial showed a, uh, a, a significant increase uh, in death, reinfarction, infarction and shock in seven days for people who had gotten uh, continuation of their or the home medications or NSAIDs that were prescribed in the hospital. So either way, the uh, medicine should either be stopped or not given if uh, NSAID is being prescribed. Um, the next uh, recommendation is a pretty uh, significant change and it's it, uh, um, something that is uh, um, one of the key um, points that authors make about uh, um, uh, studies is this is such a significant change, you really have to be on board with your cardiologist in treating patients. And this is about beta blockers, uh, both IV and oral beta blockers. Um, the first recommendation is that oral beta blockers should be given within the first 24 hours. And that's a class 1B uh, uh, recommendation. The reason it being is it decreases the incidence of, uh, of reinfarction and it decreases the incidence of V-fib. Um, the problem with giving beta blockers is it increases your risk of cardiogenic shock. So specifically, uh, cardiogenic shock typically happens in the first 24 hours and reinfarction and V-fib typically happens Post uh, the 21st 20, 24 hours. So the r- current recommendation is oral beta blockers should be given within the first 24 hours, and they definitely should be held for um, people that have CHF, low output states, cardiogenic shocks, and of course the uh, contraindications of uh, uh, second and third degree heart block and asthma. There's no uh, um, 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 indication of, as far as heart rate, uh, whether to give it or not to control heart rate. Uh, again, there are contraindications and of the same as the oral beta blockers, and the, uh, the recommendation to give an IV beta blocker is actually class 2A-B, um, uh, so it is, it is a uh, less, um, um, you know, risk does that way the benefit, but it should be used with caution. In 2007, these are the, the things that I mentioned earlier about the class 3, and there's a class 3 evidence that about withholding it for uh, uh, the contraindications listed. So, one of the uh, things is this comes, uh, this, this uh, um, recommendation comes primarily from the COMIT trial, C-O-M-M-I-T, and is a large study uh, from China, and uh, that could be a, uh, um, you know, um, uh, a source of debate whether um, <laughs> it's something we should be instituting and my recommendation is that, you know, whether you work here in the university or in private practice, you should be, uh, you know, on board with your cardiologist about how you're going to treat, the, you know, the patient and, and have a, a somewhat of a protocol. Of course, it is, you know, up to you, finally, your, your decision when you treat the patient. So, reperfusion. So, um, it's been a, uh, primary PCI is the goal. The... Uh, the recommendation is 90 minutes from the first time of medical contact. And that is when the EMS picks the patient up or when the patient comes by private car to the hospital. And then it, this is basically a system-wide goal, and it's been uh, modified uh, to reflect that in 2007. So our goal is 90 minutes uh, to balloon time. Um, if, if you're at a hospital that doesn't have PCI uh, capability, still your goal is PCI, and you have to make a judgment can you get a balloon uh, up in 90 minutes from the time that the person first got into the ambulance you saw the patient to the patient being transferred to having a balloon and so that most of the time is probably unlikely uh, but if it can be accomplished uh, PCI would be the goal if it can't be accomplished in the first 90 minutes then you're actually going back to a 30 minute window from the first medical contact and given thrombolytics and some, uh, pre-hospital EKGs is a big uh, part in being prepared to to give this when the patient hits the door. And so, uh, figure our panel A here lists uh, the uh, uh, sort of the uh, timeline. So the EMS is on the scene. We try to encourage uh, 12 lead EKGs. They actually put a statement in about uh, paramedics giving um, fibrinolitics if uh, if capable. Um, I have not seen that done, but uh, it is uh, uh, shown in the the figure. And uh, about transferring to the uh, um, closest hospital versus the PCI-compatible hospital. There is a trial in uh, Europe somewhere. No, I would not recommend that, but they put a statement in there, which was really surprising to me. And then the next one is uh, facilitated (coughs) PCI. This has been a... uh, uh, um, um, sort of a new hot topic. Facilipa- facilitated PCI is different than uh, rescue PCI, in where facilitated PCI is planning on giving a thrombolytic or some some do- some medicine that uh, uh, that is going to cause fibrinolysis, high dose heparin, 2B3A inhibitors, uh, either full dose fibrinolinx or reduced uh, dose fibrinolinx, and then having uh, planned PCI uh, as soon as possible afterwards. And so, uh, um, and the recommendation, uh, which is a 2B, is that facility PCI uh, uh, can be done and should and should be done for patients who are high risk uh, for um, for PCI that's not available within 90 minutes and when the bleeding risk is low. And those are people with young age; they don't have they do not have poorly hypercon- poorly controlled hypertension, and they ha- have a relatively normal body weight. Um, and specifically, you should not give full dose um, um, uh, fibrinolysis. If you give full dose, they, they, they're, they're too high risk for uh, PCI immediately afterwards. And it, they even go ahead and make this a Class C um, recommendation to not do any, any facilitated PCI because uh, it can be harmful wow. after full dose. Yeah. Uh, they use a lot of times uh, 75 years old as a, as a criteria. So, but I think uh, in, in, in response to Dr. House's question, there's still the, you know, our next slide is uh, rescue PCI. So, this is fibrinolysis that's failed. And so, in, in, there has to be a strategy. If you give fibrinolysis, what happens if it fails? And basically, there's a, you need to have a coronary angiogram if it fails. And the coronary angiogram is done with the intent to either perform PCI or, uh, as in the case of, uh, um, the gentleman that collapsed at the basketball game a couple years ago that I took care of, he went on to have emergent cabbage because he had uh, um, such significant uh, disease. So I, I like these recommendations a lot, and I think these are important for people that uh, are going to be working out in uh, private practice, whether it with not a PCI center or, or, or uh, maybe like Dean who's going to be working in Vernal. Vern, is that what it's called? 180 miles to the next hospital. So, so you may, in with weather and everything, you may have someone like this in your emergency room for a long time. And you have to deal with uh, uh, failed uh, thrombo- uh, fibrolysis. So if they're less than 75 and they're in cardiogenic shock, they they should be uh, um, get um, uh, the rescue therapy. Severe CHF, or if they have hemodynamically compromising now ventricular arrhythmias. They should go for, they, after getting fibrinolysis, even full dose, they should go for coronary angiogram because there's such, such high risk for complications or death. So, if full dose failed, uh, they go for um, uh, an angiogram. And the angiogram could result in PCI or could result in cabbage. So, that's a new recommendation. These are things I think you'll see on your board exam. Uh, maybe not, you know, uh, maybe they even could have, like, uh, in your written boards, written in-service. You may see questions like this, and they may even be, like, experimental questions because it's so new, but uh, by the time you take your written boards, these, these questions will be on there, and it'll give a scenario, and so I think it's important to know um, the, the differences. So uh, then it, so those were all Class 1 recommendations on, on the previous slide. Uh, they they go on to further define this as far as some class two recommendations, so still pretty strong recommendations. Uh, age greater than 75, as opposed to the previous side, which is age greater, less than 75. So age greater than 75 with cardiogenic shock need uh, rescue uh, um, uh, treatment. If they're hemodynamically unstable and having, uh, or electrically unstable, or if having persistent ischemia. Um, another uh, reason to have, um, uh coronary angiogram the electrical unstable you know differs from the previous uh, class 1 recommendation to talk about ventricular arrhythmias so this would include all uh, arrhythmias bradycardia uh, uh, uncontrolled afib and so forth and then and then the new recommendation is failed fibr- fibrinolysis uh, um, when i trained uh, you know we 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 always looked at the SD segments and they they, they, they an- uh, after giving fibrinolysis They do a nice job in stating what is failed fibrinolysis based on EKG criteria. So you're supposed to look at the largest lead that has the the highest ST segment elevation. And after, at 90 minutes of giving the first drug, the first dose, you look at that same ST segment and you should see greater than a 50% reduction in the ST segment. If you don't, they should have um, uh, rescue. And that's, that's a new recommendation. And so they may not have lack of pain. They may be hemodynamically fine, but but the EKG uh, uh, is, a, is the criteria you need to know. Um, and then they go on to list some more general statements, which are, of course, class two B. That you know anyone that seems high risk, you know that they, uh, uh, you think that um, they would benefit. They would go for your early PCI. Uh, and then, of course, the patient who doesn't want to have it shouldn't have it, and that's a class C. So, uh, stating the obvious, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of those in here. I would love to see a new yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go into about uh, uh, ancillary therapy for uh, after giving fibrinolysis. Uh, the first is an uh, anticoagulation for a minimum of forty-eight hours. They specifically talk about uh, heparin and. Uh, switching to low molecular weight heparin at 48 hours uh, of therapy because the, uh, of the high incidence of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Um, uh, the, the dose, f- now these are, don't forget, this isn't just, a, this is not a STEMI going to the cath lab, this is a, a STEMI that's going to get ph- uh, uh, thrombolytics, we're talking about now. The dose is not uh, a little bit less than your normal dose. Uh, Unfractionated heparin is 60 units per kilogram. The most is 4,000 units and then you have a maintenance dose, no no, uh, higher than 1,000 units per hour. My recommendation would be to start, uh, my personal recommendation would be to start heparin and have someone else switch to low molecular weight heparin because you can easily shut down and heparin off uh, and not the uh, uh, low molecular weight heparin. Uh, next, they talk about, uh, um, um, about the doses for low molecular heparin himself. Again, their Class A recommendations are 1A, as, is, as was the, well, actually, the, the unfractured heparin is this 1C. So maybe I need to, you know, change my, uh, my practice a little bit because the cl- Class 1A, after uh, giving uh, thrombolysis, is to use low molecular heparin um, if you're less than 75 years old. And actually, go ahead as a Class 1A, this is big, uh, you know, we don't, we're not going to see this here because we don't use TPA or if I, you know, we go to the cath lab for 99% of everybody, but uh, out in the uh, small ERs, if you're going to thrombolyce, they recommend an IV loading dose of low-microwave heparin as a class 1A. So you have the strongest recommendation, the highest level of evidence to give IV lovinox 30 milligrams and then a 1 milligram per kilogram sub-Q dose. Typically this is started a short time after giving uh, thrombolytics. From the, Riva, the, 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 uh, it was like 15 to 30 minutes after giving uh, the thrombolytics to start IV uh, Yeah, it's 12 hours. Q 12 hours. So and they're, if they're greater than 75, no loading dose, and the dose of lobanox is much small, is half the dose, it's 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. And then they, they talk about an alternative agent that some hospitals use. And again, an IV loading dose, and then 2.5 milligrams sub-Q. And that's a daily dose uh, uh, um, for the Fonda parana, I guess is how you would say it. Uh, the reason why it's class 1B, I think there's, uh, um, uh, there's less risk of bleeding, but there may be more risk of uh, um, not acting as a better anticoagulant. Um, in looking at giving uh, heparin, or unfractionated heparin, or low molecular heparin for those getting PCI, there's been no change uh, from the ED perspective. They, they talk about things that when people are admitted uh, after the fact, but uh, from our perspective, there's no change. And then Plavix is another big one. And this is, uh, again, this is a, uh, 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 a big change um, for all STEMIs. 75 milligrams of plevex should be given for 14 days. Uh, and this is a, um, um, a difficult d- decision how to implement this in the emergency room because the uh, the next recommendation is to withhold 5 if they're going to be undergoing a cabbage in the next seven days because of bleeding so you have contrary you know evidence and so um, uh, I think the next slide uh, even says uh, uh, is a class 2a recommendation which is a little less if those uh, are less than 75 uh, whether they receive fibrillosis or, or not, they should get uh, 300 milligrams of Playvex. And uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of confusing. So if you're in the ER, and this person's gonna go to an angiogram, and they may have to have a cabbage, are you gonna be doing harm by giving them I think this is where you really have to be on board with your cardiologist and your, your CV surgeon for a plan. We don't give it in the emergency room by, uh, here, you know, for that reason. And it is, uh, uh, um, a difficult thing to do if a patient is not going to go for you um, know um, to the cath lab and there's no plan for fibrinolysis like medical management, then it definitely should be given. Okay, and then they talk about the no perfusion group, people that don't. Uh, uh, um, uh, it's same as the fibrinolysis group. You want to give you know a non-heparin anticoagulation for the next eight days. So people that don't reperfuse, but you're still going to treat them with anticoagulation. Um, so that wraps up the STEMI uh, um, part of my talk. Uh, any questions on that? Okay, we'll go into the uh, unstable angina, non-STEMI uh, people. Uh, this is a big guideline. It's 157 pages long. thought you read? No, I read the executive summary. It was only 57 pages long. So. Uh, um, um, the executive. Su- it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, uh, I did look up a few things in the, uh, the the very long one, and if there's everything you want to know about treatment for chest pain and it, uh, someone that has uh, coronary syndrome, it, it's there. It's it's a pretty pretty nice document. But what I did was went through the uh, executive summary and talk about the changes. And a lot of them, uh, uh, in, uh, unlike the last set of slides, I'm just going to hit hit some of the highlights uh, in a different format. So. Uh, one other thing that is important to recognize is anginal equivalence. So, big one is dyspnea in the elderly uh, um, or diaphoresis or someone with extreme fatigue. Uh, definitely uh, anginal equivalents. One-third of people who present with uh, MI do not have chest pain. And the five most important factors in the history, the nature of the pain the, or the symptoms, do they have a prior history of coronary artery disease, are they male, do they have, are they older, And the least most important thing is actually the number of traditional risk factors. So, um, but the history is the most important. How about response to nitro or GI cocktail? Is that important? No. The only thing that's important for is treating pain. It's not important for, it's not a way to make a diagnosis. And it is, you know, important to dilate the coronary arteries, of course, the nitroglycerin. It's not, so treating the, you know, using that as a, a, a treatment decision Shouldn't, is not, shouldn't be done, it's not sensitive uh, or specific. And as far as EKGs, so it's up to uh, 6% of people with non-STEMIs have normal EKGs, uh, and 4% of people with angina have normal EKGs. Um, and then the one thing to note is is ST depression, you know, that's a, that's a considered a non-STEMI or a cardiac ischemia, uh, acutely, but if it's in leads V1 through V3, uh, that is a posterior MI, and so that qualifies for a STEMI, and so that's important to recognize. You know, Dr. Nunji had a case of that when he first came out. I think it was his first shift uh, uh, alone, Um, and he was showing me the EKG, had that. So, uh, you know, the uh, recommendations are to get an EKG within the first 10 minutes and hand it to the ED physician, Uh, and they talk about serial EKGs, Something that uh, you know we do, but I don't know if we do this frequently. Recommending uh, 15 to 30 minutes yeah, EKGs to look for any changes, and talk about uh, uh, getting a, a, um, an EKG with leads V7 through V9. Does anybody know what those are? So it's this continuation of the leads, uh, uh, six ends over uh, in your. Uh, um, uh, just, you know, just probably mid-axillary line almost, you just keep going around to the back. So, V9 is, is, is around to your back. And it, you can see posterior infarcts better and left circumflex artery. And uh, it's, it's when someone that's high risk, and you're thinking something's really going on, the initial EKG is non-diagnostic, that could be a good test. Um, so, the, the management of, of folks: well, of course, if the EKGs and serial en- enzymes remain normal. You want to get a stress test uh, for those people. If uh, they're deemed low risk, they they doc, they write in uh, the recommendation that it's reasonable to get an outpatient stress test in seventy two hours. But they, they talk about you know sending people home. You need to uh, consider uh, um, you know having them get aspirin and nitroglycerin with them, and maybe even a beta blocker. Um, coronary CT is an alternative to a stress test for the lower intermediate people. Um, who have a a risk of coronary artery disease but have normal enzymes and normal EKG. Um, So as far as medications go, um, we, you know, we get sublingual nitros certainly the mainstay and if people are having persistent pain, congestive heart failure, hypertension, IV uh, nitroglycerin should be started. When are they contraindicated? I think we all familiar with this. Low blood pressure, low heart rate, uh, maybe even a high heart rate because of the incidence of a high heart rate associated with a right, right-sided right uh, 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 disease. And uh, those, uh, one of the uh, things we sometimes forget to ask is about the use of uh, uh, Viagra. They haven't had it in 48 hours. We don't want their blood pressure to bottom out. The uh, beta blocker recommendations are the same as the STEMI patients, so that should be uh, easy to remember. Uh, and if a beta blocker is contraindicated and you have to uh, use something to slow heart rate down, uh, the recommendation is either verapamil or diltiazem. I would err on giving diltiazem. Verapamil, I think, causes uh, more hypotension, and diltiazem doesn't. An ACE inhibitor in the first 24 hours, but, but, but typically not in the emergency department. And interesting, they downgraded morphine from a class 1 to a class 2A. Uh, whereas in the stemI it's a class one the reason being uh, I think specifically is uh, uh, two reasons is uh, uh treatment of pain doesn't equal treatment of ischemia and so I think they're uh, uh, in the crusade registry they've, they've uh, uh, looked at some things and and found that uh, uh, you know maybe maybe morphine is overutilized and that is and then, uh, again, it's the same with the uh, aspirin and uh, uh, NSAIDs. You uh, should only give aspirin if someone's on an NSAID. Do not continue it and do not start it, a new one. There you go. Uh, so do we, we do want to give aspirin early. If they have an allergy to aspirin, play of X, 300 milligrams. If there's a history of GI bleeding, you should still give it, uh, but you should, need, should add a proton pump inhibitor. Uh, um, you know, the uh, Playvex, there's still uh, uh, um, controversy over this. Cardiac surgeons say no. But there is some sort of increasing support for administering before the cath lab. Currently, it's, not, uh, uh, it's debatable in our institution. We don't do this. Uh, and that, that's a, a focus of new research. And so we should keep an eye on that to see if the recommendations change. Um, uh, for anticoagulation, uh, we can use um, Lovenox or unfractionated heparin. And uh, if there is an increased risk of bleeding and you still want to give anticoagulation, they recommend giving Fonda-Paranox associated with a slightly lower risk of bleeding. Um, And then there's uh, the the treatment options. Do we do conservative treatment or should there be invasive? Uh, Patients that have refractory pain, hemodynamic compromise, or electrical instability should have early invasive treatment. That's why here, you know, our protocol in, in, here is patients that have persistent pain, chest pain, that we can't get their chest pain to go away, they may still be having, uh, um, you know, ongoing ischemia, we have the CVICU come down and evaluate them uh, for possible early invasive uh, treatment. And many of these patients get admitted to the CVICU um, um, for optimal care. Uh, uh, or of course, if they're having uh, uh, have a risk of bad outcomes. And so you're someone with a positive troponin, your ST segment uh, depressions, signs of CHF, mitral regurg, um, VTAC, and then the patients uh, you know with the prior history, uh, PCI in the past or cabbage, and they have a high TIMI or Grace uh, risk score. Anyone know how to find out a TIMI or Grace score? Actually, I just do a little thing, a little quick search on the internet. You know you have, and you can just plug in TIMI score and TIMI Grace score or risk score and you'll uh, get a little thing to plug it in and help if you're, you know, helping to talk to your cardiologist maybe. We don't use it here, here too much, but other institutions might. And they talk about special groups, making sure that in the elderly and those with kidney disease, you, you, you look at your dosing, your medicines. Diabetes, there's really no uh, specific uh, management by uh, um, different in treating their, their symptoms. And then uh, cocaine and methamphetamines. Uh, do not give beta blockers. Uh, give a calcium channel, channel, channel blocker over that. Uh, and again, if uh, someone's having SD7 elevation MI uh, and you can't get PCI, you may have to give fibro, uh, Linux. They do list labetalol in their recommendations now for the first time, and that's listed as the class 2B. So, beta has alpha and beta blocking capabilities. So, for those with a heart rate greater than 100 and high in blood pressure systolic greater than 150, it is recommenda- recommending. You know, do, They do mention calcium child blockers over beta blockers, but they do not make any statement about withholding uh, beta blockers or, or the dangers of it. So, uh, uh, sort of uh, interesting to me since we, it's, it's part of our practice. So, I got a couple extra articles just to talk about. Uh, I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, one is about hospital delays and reperfusion. We, you know, the new guidelines. We see, saw that chart with the ambulance, the, 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 and you know, going to the PCI center versus non-PCI center, and uh, uh, you know, here you have the medicine on board, you know, in your hand. Do I give it, or do I transfer him to another hospital? And so, uh, uh, in, a, in a published article from Circulation, they took a look at a registry of 192,000 patients with um, with STEMI. And I thought this was pretty interesting. So they looked. They looked at all the outcomes uh, based on the time onset of symptoms and the time from either fibrinolysis or balloon. And they try to characterize how well these people did and, how, and, and, and justifying how long would you be willing to wait. So if your pain started, uh, regardless of age, if your pain started within two hours, you, you, you should be willing to wait 94 minutes. At that point, you're at the break-even point, whether you're fibrinolysis or thrombolytics. Uh, if it's if your pain has lasted for two hours, and you came in like three hours of chest pain, uh, the benefits of PCI, you can wait up to 190 minutes, PCI would be better than thrombolysis. Uh, age less than 65, 71 years old. Age greater than 65, 155 minutes. Um, certainly having a higher age uh, makes it more riskier to give uh, thrombolytics, and f- you should be able to wait for PCI uh, Based on that. So and then, uh, you know, even characterizing this a little further, uh, um, there, there's a bunch of, uh, um, there's a whole big table about uh, um, who who benefits and what, about combinations. And let's take the young person, two hours uh, of onset of symptoms, and he's having a big anterior wall on he's having the big one. Forty minutes should be your, your wait time uh, by giving uh, um, thrombolytics. But then, if you look at someone who's elderly, greater than sixty-five, two hours uh, onset and is having a non-anterior uh, wall my way up to three hours for uh, um, PCI. So there, there is a uh, you know, the adage, do-no-harm, and those those drugs are are pretty potent. So when to give them, when not to give them, is uh, an important thing. Uh, glucose control, uh, specifically hyperglycemia, whether it's diabetic or non-diabetic. Uh, high blood sugar in itself does cause a uh, um, um, hypercoagulable state. And here's what, uh, platelets and uh, uh, in, in the coagulation uh, cascade. And so an elevated uh, blood sugar at, on admission uh, is an independent predictor of both uh, good and bad uh, outcomes uh, in the hospital and long term. And so whether you're diabetic or not, it still matters. And they've even quantified that for each milligram 18 milligrams of glucose elevated over uh, uh, 140, there's a 4% increase in mortality. So glucose control is uh, recommended. Uh, CPR, Lancet article in 2007, talked about uh, CPR and in, uh, in, in, uh, neurologic outcomes. So those people that um, receive CPR, um, chest compressions only, had much better outcome than people that had uh, chest compressions with uh, with uh, mouth-to-mouth or some sort of uh, um, uh, airway or resuscitation by bystanders. So the results are pretty significant. For those that presented with apnea, uh, six, they had a 6.2% better outcome. Uh, 6.2% had a good outcome versus 3.1% in the non-annular uh, group for those that had uh, uh just just c p just just chest compressions versus chest compressions with uh 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 say mouth to mouth uh if you look with uh those presented with shockable rhythms very similar and overwhelming you know twenty almost twenty percent uh um, had a good neurologic outcome uh better neurologic outcome uh if getting chest compressions only uh so uh you know for for the bystanders out there uh you know, early chest compressions are very important. I thought this was very interesting. Uh, EKG differentiating between acute pulmonary embolus and acute coronary syndrome. So this is kind of a small study. Uh, I'm sure uh, it needs to be looked at as far as, uh, uh, you know, a larger study. It only involved uh, um, about 80, so 80 patients or so. So uh, what these guys did is they looked at emitting uh, EKGs uh, for people with acute PE in acute coronary syndrome and specifically they wanted to look at those that had T wave inversions in the V1, V2, and V3 and of those if you had a if you had a continuation of T wave inversions in lateral leads like one in AVL not one patient in that group had a PE but if you didn't have, if you had an upright T wave in in lateral leads but you had a a T inverted in uh, lead 3 the limb lead three. 88% had a PE, only 1% had acute coronary syndrome. So here's an example of the EKGs. On the left would be uh, an EKG of something having a PE, and an EKG on the right of something uh, having acute coronary syndrome. So I think a take-home point here is, if you see T-lave inversions in V1, V2, and V3, look onto the lateral leads. If you see ischemia and lateral leads, think of acute coronary syndrome. If you see uh, uh, a T wave inversion in lead V3, you think PE. Certainly uh, use your history taking skills more than the EKG. But this is a small study now, so it should be repeated. Okay, I didn't put my Forrest Gump box of chocolates thing in here yet. Oops. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, last slide dark chocolate. So, uh, of course, I'm going to add another slide in about. uh, cardiology research is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. So, uh, people did some uh, study on dark chocolate. Specifically, they, they had uh, people that had uh, um, the highest risk group for uh, atherosclerosis are those with um, transplanted hearts. Um, very high risk for um, coronary artery disease. Um, and so they gave uh, the dark chocolate to them and seeing what they did. Uh, and the way they did it is uh, very interesting, very very scientific uh, setup. They were, it was a randomized double blinding control study and they looked at the vasal motion of hearts and uh, um, both prior to the giving uh, dark chocolate and two hours after. And what they found was that the coronary arteries were a little more relaxed, uh, dilated with uh, those who got dark chocolate and the uh, endothelium um, coronary vasal motion improves significantly. So dark chocolate works on those coronary arteries uh, and could be a a mainstay treatment for, uh, so uh, anyways, dark chocolate does improve coronary uh, vasodilation and vascular function in uh, heart transplanted patients.